G'day and welcome to the second installment of Cinema Nova's podcast, Meet the Filmmaker. Tonight we have an extra special chat with the director of A Bigger Splash, Luca Guadagino, hosted by film critic of the age, Philippa Hawker. Join her now as she introduces Luca after a screening of his film. into the consequences. And in this uh, uh, great painting by David Hockney, which I always admire since I saw it for the first time, and in general in these Californian pools, there's always a sense of uh, uh, almost dread uh, and uh, suspension. Uh, uh, Of course, a great uh, kind of uh, uh, eroticism and sexuality under the surface. And in the biggest splash painting, I don't know if you know the painting, but it's pretty famous. Uh, you have this splash of water. And you don't know who's in. Who's you don't know who's splash, in. You don't know who's in the water. You don't know who's in the. In the we don't know who is in the, in the, in the house. There was some sort of Hitchcockian suspense in that painting, even if the painting has these beautiful, simple colors, to it. So it, both in terms of the um, uh, idea that the the, the, the painting. Uh, raised in our mind and uh, in the formalistic aspects of it, we, we, we really dig into it too and get inspiration for the movie. We even shot a sequence uh, in, the, in the Tate uh, Britain at Pimlico in London um, in front of the painting and that was framing the movie. But eventually we realized that uh, it was great and the DP of that sequence was the fantastic Peter Fushitsky who has lived for the last 20 years in Cronenberg's film. But we felt it was a bit of a redundancy. Because your, I mean, your cinematographer in this film also shot swimming pool, didn't he? Is that right? Uh, Eurek also shot the swimming pool yes. by, by François Ozon, which I haven't seen though. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big fan of François Ozon. <laughs> <laughs> you do also have, um, there's, a, there's quite an important, I don't want to say too much for people who haven't seen I Am Love, your previous film, but there is a pool that, that you know, there's some significance to danger in a swimming pool in that film too, isn't there? Well, that, I, I think it's unconscious, but I think it has to do with the fact that um, I, can't, I, I can't float. If you, jump, if you throw me into the water and I don't touch ground, I will drown. It's literal. And it happened to me that I was a kid and a group of German kids, of course, they threw me into the water and I, was, I went down and my brother saved my life. Um, I Am Love was a, um, a wonderful film. I'm sure lots of people here have seen it. And of course, I think we all, um, those of us who did, thought how fantastic Tilda Swinton was in it, and as she is indeed in this film too. But I mean, your association with her goes back a long way. Can you just tell us a little bit about when you first met her and how that working relationship has continued? I met Tilda for the first time when I saw Caravaggio and I was 
And that added a comedic aspect to her performance that was very enduring to look at. But then it, later on, her, her silence becomes something very different, doesn't it, in, in the course of the yeah. film? Or, or even her um, destroyed uh, voice. Mm. She may end up not uh, singing anymore. Indeed, yes. Yeah. But, and also, I mean, another thing we, we see that I, mean, I don't think I've seen before is Ray Fiennes playing this kind of role. How, how did you come? How did he come to be involved in this? Because it's a wonderful comic performance, but very unlike anything I've seen him do. Well, go on. Mm, of course, I am a, I'm, I'm a big fan of Ray. Who's not? One of the latest. And, uh, and Queen's show really, really conquered me completely. Um, and uh, I was looking for someone to play Harry. And one day I saw the trailer for the Grand Budapest Hotel, in which he was. It was you who started a serious pinky gay, gay, gay guy, not gay guy. In Italy, they think that the character is gay, even if he fucks so many women in the movie. I tell you, because he wears pink and he's coming. In all the reviewers said um, So, they even dubbed him with this very kind of cliche gay voice. I'm telling you about the state of my character. <laughs> Which you can see also in the, in the talks. Even. Um, so I thought that I found this kind of levity in Rafe, in that little trailer that was fascinating to me. So I asked for a meeting, which was very great because it happened very soon. And uh, we met. And in the meeting, uh, Rafe is a man of few words. So there was not much to say, but just look at each other in the eyes of Steve. <laughs> so I didn't say, okay, get the script. So he wrote the script, wrote the script, called me back, and he was in. Because I think he felt that there was something about the energy of Harry that he meant, resonated in him, probably. And so that, that incredible physical, kind of absolutely ceaseless movement, that's all there sort of coming from the script, or did he bring a particular physical dimension to it that you weren't expecting? Being a great performer, also being a great director, Ray directed two great films, Coriolanus and The Invisible Woman. He is super cunning in reading text. And so he made his own version of what they wrote, which is great. Um, and since the month of December, when we agreed on making the movie together, he put his head onto Harry Hawks. We shot in July, so it was six months and more, seven months, and for him to chisel this character in a way that was fantastic. He was always concerned that he, he didn't want it to feel too much, too above the lines, you know? And I did felt that he was doing such a balanced, fine performance, still a wrong, but in the movie, but. There's one scene that is pretty amazing. It's the fight scene in the pool. Um, when he and Matthias Schoenz, I mean, that, that struggle, that's an extraordinary scene. How, how did you, how did you sort of shoot, choreograph, shoot that? How did that, how did that work? Was it a difficult one to do? Well, there is nothing simple in making a movie, and, uh, and I'm not trying to uh, cover myself on glory or by any kind of, you know, I'm showing you, and I'm doing that for something, and I, I don't buy the revenant thing. They should have shot it in the stage. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is a perfect version of that movie with Richard, with, with Richard Harris 
shot in the 70s, which with by by Sarafian, which is a masterpiece, and they truly shot on a stage. Evan said that. Um, I'm sorry for for George Miller. So I was saying that um, this is this, this the fight scene. In the yeah, we, we 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 shot the scene. I mean, I wanted to see uh, death at play. You know, I wanted to uh, try to make sure that uh, the act of killing or the incident of killing, let's make let's say that, uh, was not uh, perceived by the audience as. A trick, a device, something that may have been uh, um, dramatized. I wanted to be physical, and I wanted to be uh, endured, and I wanted to be real. So I made a lot of investigation. How does it go if someone ends up in a pool fighting, and he has he if he has uh, drunk so much, and if he has drunk so much, uh, and if one is tall like that? And I made a lot of I'm very specific. So I made a lot of inquiries on the physicality and what was the possibilities for one to die and the other one to kill. So we staged that very carefully on the grounds of what uh, uh, scientifically we had been knowledgeable about. In fact, I think I think that Harry, um, um, in one sense he gave up life, and in one sense he has a stroke, because that's what can happen. Um, um, so that was the first thing, and then I wanted it to be seemingly one shot, and uh, we shot for three days in different kind of formats and different kind of cuts, and then this fantastic uh, special effects people that I hired, who works with uh, Patch and Walk and Bong Joon Ho in Korea and South Korea, company for CP, they they sewed the thing together in order for it to look like one shot. Because it, I mean, it's extraordinarily compelling. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just a couple more things before I turn over. Um, one is the, the um, it's a very, it's those, those four people you know, are at the center of it all, but round the rest of the story, you've introduced, there's the presence of, of, of refugees, of people whose lives are you know, in an incredibly different place from, from these four privileged people. How, when did you decide that you wanted these characters, these, this presence in the film as well? Well, I, I accepted to do this movie, um, and instantly I felt that Panzeria, this island of the coast of Tunisia, was the right place for it. Because I wanted, I, I like space, both architectural and natural, to be in a relationship with my characters, so that I can have, a, a, that the space isn't, the place is not a vector of necessity, there is a friction. Um, and, uh, and I felt that Pantelleria could be, could have been the real, the real fifth character here with all its um, relentless uh, uh, fierceness, natural fierceness, but also with the fact that being the door to Europe or, or the last piece of Europe, one of the last pieces of Europe, in a way was also a place for otherness. And uh, these four people who are completely um, self-referential, completely self-absorbed by their own um, obsessions. They are truly refusing what uh, psychoanalytically is the first act <coughs> of unhealthy 
um, individuality, which is to be able to recognize the other. And when they finally have to face the presence of anotherness that they don't even think exists, what do they do with that? And what is the ethical answer they ask, they, they, they give themselves? So that's what I wanted. And that was from the very beginning of the script. Um, now, I'm sure that people have lots of questions about this film, but I, just before I hand over, I wanted to ask about what I believe is one of your next projects, and that's um, the remake of Suspiria, um, the Dario Argento film. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Is, is Tilda Swinton going to be in that, and, and Dakota as well? Is that Tilda and Dakota are going to be in it. Um, it's a, it, Suspiria by Dario Argento has been for many, many years, now I would say 34, an obsession of mine. And I want to pay homage to the obsession of that crazy kid uh, craving to look to, to watch Suspiria and not being able to, and then watching Suspiria and being traumatized. And so I want to find again that, exp that ex traumatic experience. I want to give a voice to that on the screen. It's not going to be narcissistically as, I, as it sounds right now, but that's what I wanted. And Yoshi, is it going to be set in Berlin? Is that right? In Berlin in 1977. So, um, so it's going to be the most husband of Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, now, I think it's time for people in the audience to ask questions. Um, congratulations, Luca. Um, I loved it, even more than I am love, I have to be honest. I'm struck by all the ambiguities. If you came to see it, you were curious. I saw I am love, yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll try with the references. Um, I'm curious, during the film, the, the impact of the elements and the weather was one of the things that um, I found involving too, as, as background to the stories playing out. I'm just wondering, um, a Visconti film that I was struck by years ago uh, was, um, I think in Italian it's Vagestelle dell'Orsa, Sandra, yeah. with Claudio Cardinale. Um, is that a film you particularly like, or was it something that may have been swimming around in, in there at all, um, in terms of the impact of external factors? Well, I, 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 of course I have a great admiration for Visconti, and uh, uh, I don't think Visconti has a great influence on my work, uh, uh, even if people think that by, um, by having seen I am love. Um, but no, I haven't thought about Pakistan and the Lord sounds like doing this morning. Uh, congratulations, that was uh, amazing. <laughs> um, uh, you worked before with the same cinematographer, Yoru? Lesso. Lesso. Um, can you talk a bit about how you work with him? Well, Yorick and I have been doing two films back together, which is this one and I am love, and we already made and we also made a lot of little movies like short films and commercials. And um, I think we share, we share the same love, of, the same references, like the same kind of cinema we like. Um, we like uh, also very much uh, uh, to be able to use as much natural light as possible. Yeah. And we like, I love to use uh, 35 millimeter. Yeah. And um, usually in, with Yorick, uh, after having understood the general sense of light, I leave him doing that, and I concentrate on the camera work. That's how it goes. Um, I've noticed that lots of your films deal with communication, and the fact that it's kind of 
like a dangerous when communication breaks down. Why do you sort of explore that even in the sort of short films, like the advertisements? I, I, I think that's what we are made of. Interaction, no? that's, um, I, I, like I like people, I like to see, I like the complication of, I like our complications, so I like to try to investigate that. And I, I also think that uh, um, it, it's riveting when you work with actors that are intelligent enough to go against the drama just to find truthfulness. So the communication is a big aspect of it to me. Hi. Um, I just want to continue the camera theme a little bit. I, I, um, I noticed that sometimes you make us aware of the camera and like, uh, especially in the glasses, I, I was aware that it wasn't there. And, um, it wasn't there. Yeah. And, and also, um, a particular one I wanted to ask you about is those, those traveling shots in the vehicle. Um, when they became, you cut in there's some really kind of jagged moments from the camera when they're um, driving from place to place, especially when the tension was sort of mounting. And I just wanted to know if those kind of, because um, there's a contrast between the more considered, what I might call more considered moves and the more energetic sort of moves. Is that, did you find those moments in the edit or was that something that you were planning through all the time that those parts when they're driving the car and the road's really bouncy and, and those kind of moments? Well, it's a balance of being intuitive and and uh, and, uh, and, uh, and being uh, scientific. You know, you read your script. You have to understand what's going on through the story, and then you have the place and you have the light. You have all the elements, and I, I like the idea that every movie commands its own language. That you do not have to impose what for me it's a travesty, which is the style. I think that's something I really cannot stand. I think that uh, the, the most formalistic of the director, which is Alfred Hitchcock, has never found a style. He was really creating a language, and he was really um, finding uh, the right language for every movie, and because he was consistently insisting on, on the note of the genre, of the noir and thriller, he, was, he became such a refined uh, uh, director in defining that co co codes, but in the same time, it surpassed the codes and made a sort of uh, uh, use of cinema that is now what we can see as a great uh, understanding of life. Um, in my specific case, what I try to do is I try to think of what we have to communicate. and. Uh, Yes, it's true, sometimes you need a shot because you need to convey attention or something. And, um, and, uh, and that's what we do. Hi, you left it sort of ambiguous, but I was wondering if you personally had a feeling about what's next for Marianne and Paul, now that they've gotten away with murder. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> I'm more interested in hearing what you have to say than the same. <laughs> I don't know if Tilda's going to stay with Matthias. She seems so doubtful, but then she doesn't have a voice, so it's hard to know whether she speaks up and leaves, or if they stay together. Perfectly decent. I, I think that uh, there is a question mark in her face at the end, and there is a big question mark in the movie. There are some question marks around the movie. I think that... Um, 
it's so fascinating to uh, to see the person in in being uh, fragile and exposed. You know, it's almost voyeuristic. But that look of Tilda at the end is very enigmatic. But uh, maybe it's very simple. She may have said, she truly may say we got away with it. And they become a boring bourgeois millionaire. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think you find that um, people have very different ideas about how that ending, that, that, um, that some people feel really differently, respond really differently? Well, um, I have to confess that um, one of my favorite magazines, the American Cinematographer, who came as a cover story for I Am Love, denying the space for this movie because they hated the characters, which is so fascinating to me because it's a sort of almost adolescent reading of a movie, hating or loving the character, particularly for a magazine who's talking about light. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I mean, we got pretty very wide range of uh, reactions. People love Harry, people hate Harry, people love Marianne, people think that Marianne is a bitch, people adore Penelope, people think that Penelope is insufferable, and sometimes there is someone who said, I like Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for a couple more questions. So, yeah, please raise your hand. I really like your choice of music. Um, I think the Rolling Stones inspired the ch choice. But uh, could you tell us about John Adams and your use of his music and where you um, obtained the idea to use his music? I think it's also in um, this is I Am Love. You use John Adams as well as this film, I believe. Well, I, I, I discovered John Adams' music in 2005 when I was editing a movie called Melissa P. And uh, I also have learned a great lesson because that movie was produced, financed by Sony, uh, Sony Europe, but literally was followed. Well, it, was, it was a movie overseen by um, this great, great executive called Gareth Regan. Gareth was a British guy. He was a producer, executive producer of Lawrence of Arabia. He greenlit Star Wars. He is a legend. He produced and he greenlit the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Really legendary was one of the founders of the Lad Company. Um, and uh, I always thought, oh, these Americans. And in fact, he gave me this fantastic collection of John Adams music that was so inspiring to me and so surprising. And I was rewriting I Am Love at the time. And uh, I remember when I played naive and sentimental music the, by John Adams, I suddenly felt something familiar. I felt like that is the music that I was sounding in my mind, in envisioning I Am Love. So a few years later, we did I Am Love, and we really shot the film on the music of John Adams. We had these loudspeakers, and we were playing it, and we were moving the camera, and moving the actors by the rhythm of the music, and then we added the music with his music, and then we realized that we didn't have the permission to use the music, and we also didn't have the money to pay for it if uh, um, we were inquiring for the music. In fact, we inquired, and they would have asked us a huge amount of money. So we said, you know what? Let's write Mr. John Adam, who is a Pulitzer winner, pure Pulitzer winner um, author. It's like, he's a serious guy. I mean, we are all uh, pretenders. He's the real thing. And, um, and he said to us, OK, show me the movie. 
So he was in London, and we showed him I Am Love in this uh, little theater, in a private screening room. And me and Tilda sat in the, in, we were in a theater like smaller than this. She was there, and we were behind him. And, uh, and we, we, are, we were increasingly nervous, because the movie was almost finishing. And at the end, if someone can remember the movie, there is a scene in which this Hilda, the character, by the way, Hilda runs away, storms away from the house. And there is the use of a one of his greatest symphony, uh, Harmon Lire. Uh, I think it's the second movement of Harmon Lire. Anyway, and, and we look at the silhouette of John Adams, and he's doing something like. He hates it. Say no, no, no. But what are they doing with my music? And she and we start. We were really destroyed. The movie ends. The light goes on. He turns and he says, "Oh my God, this is a masterpiece. Can I have my name on the credits?" <laughs> and we said, "What?" And we were saying, "No, no, no." Say, I was conducting the <laughs> so I I really love John and uh, he gave us a big discount. It was a really unhappy ending story, and it speaks to any people who wants to become filmmakers. Never shy away from taking risks. Those are the things that are going to be worth it, and they're going to make your career if you want to have a career. Um, so, uh, in this case, uh, uh, there is naive and sentimental music, first movement, uh, when they hike. Uh, and I did a film called Inconcio Italiano, Italian Subconscious, uh, that is a movie that, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a, what I call an essay movie, which six intellectuals uh, explain us the link between the colonialism, uh, Italian colonialism in Ethiopia, and the thread of uh, the fascist identity in Italy until today. And the second part is this very rare and unseen archival footage of the Italians in Ethiopia in the 30s. And, and, and we made that film, the second half, which is 45 minutes, by using Harmonium by John Adams. So I constantly use uh, his music, and I think I will use it in Suspiria as well, because uh, it's, uh, you know, it communicates for, to me in a very strong way. It's cold and it's very warm, which is something interesting to me. I'm afraid that I think we, we have to stop there. But, oh. Uh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, look, I'm sorry, but please, thank you. Thank you. This podcast was recorded and edited by Patrick Bridges. Special thanks to Studio Canal and Cinema Nova, where you can currently see a bigger splash.